And we are in 2 Corinthians. This should be part three, and I meant to update that slide, but uh, that's the only thing that's there. But we're in this uh, last part of this section, which is verses 12 to 18. We ended last time uh, looking at this topic of correcting ministerial misunderstandings, and that's really what 2 Corinthians is sort of about. It's not the only topic, but Paul writes it as a defense uh, of why he had come the first time, and obviously had written quite a heavy letter in the first, in the, the first Corinthian letter is, um, you know, it is, it is weighty, isn't it? And as you read through it, he, he really hits some very hard issues in that church. There was some measure of repentance that had gone on. But there was also this danger of the Judaizers. They were the ones that had come in after Paul and after the church had been planted. And they were there and they had started to sow seeds of discord. They had started to bring in uh, legalisms and legalisms biblically as a term there that as you know as it portrays in the Bible anyways is um, not like a strict form of Christianity as sometimes we say you know somebody's legalistic but it's when you mix law with grace or you attempt to put the pe- people back under the law and tradition and use that as the authority for salvation and for Christian life and that in itself doesn't work and it is a heresy it's a great heresy so Paul writes in defense of his own ministry and in the defense of the gospel and as we've gone through this study you've seen that time and time again where we've looked at these things well this section correcting ministerial uh, misunderstandings uh, this whole chapter deals with that and we looked at the last two times how to wage spiritual warfare that was the first six verses and then how to use spiritual authority. We kind of ended with that last week. We looked at, um, again, the spiritual authority in prayer, especially, and, and the marks of ministry that comes from our, our character within, right? Who we really are before the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit upon us as opposed to just a successful man-based ministry, right? As people sometimes measure things by and that's where we go tonight, is how to measure spiritual ministry. How do we do that? And um, there are a number of different ways. Sometimes we measure ministries as looking out and saying, is that a good church, an effective church, uh, or an organization that is a parachurch organization? And we might say, is it effective? Is it a good one? Is it a... And, and mo- let's be honest, most often what is judged is the amount of people that come. And I had to just an irony that this comes tonight to by Guy gives me this and 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 then right in it is the very beginning it says you know 19 people coming to Mato to a bible study in Madawaska that just that just floored Pastor Dick and Marie at the time that there were that many people in Madawaska that would actually go to a bible study and I'm so thankful that um, the outflow of that has reached out to other places including myself you know and I'm just so thankful for that but you know, it's, it's not the measure of numbers. Someone might look at that, and if they just took that, not knowing this town, not knowing what the people are like, and not knowing the history, all that, would say, well, that wasn't very successful. I mean, 19, and a lot of them were related. I mean, that's, that's a miserable kind of church plant, you know? And you wouldn't go out and write a book about that. Well, no, the reality is God was in it. And he did some mighty things and uh, I imagine if all the people that have attended a Bible study in Madawaska as the outflow of that ministry over the years would all come at one time, 
we'd have no place. Some of them are in heaven. They aren't going to come back. But, but those that are still alive that are, have moved away and, and whatever else, uh, we wouldn't be able to contain them in this building by any means. And I, I'm thankful for that. But often that's how people judge things. I, I often think of that. But it isn't necessarily how God does, right? Um, if you were to say, what's the most successful ministry in the United States today? You'd have to, just in human standards, go to the Lakewood Church in, um, in Houston, right? Where Joel Osteen is the senior pastor. And they have somewhere around 40,000 members, okay? I don't know if that was pre-COVID, so I don't know where they're at now. Uh, but in the course of a, a month, they, their programming is viewed by about 20 million people worldwide, um, and that's in a hundred different countries around the world. That's from their own website that they published that. And you have to say, wow, that must be successful, you know. Well, uh, and again, I'm not here just to try to call out other people, but I read Joel Olstein's um, Easter message that came out this week, just a little blurb that he put out in all the media outlets there, picked up on it and stuff. And it's a lot of self-motivation and a lot of, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, make you feel good stuff but there isn't really much substance to it and the the strongest thing he said was that the resurrection is all about the fact that god can raise up dead things in your life you know uh, and when you scratch under the surface of that and he expands on it in his writings and in his messages you know the dead things are your financial burdens and you know your health burdens and those things god can fix all those and the ministry there, though the doctrinal statement is, is mostly orthodox, I wouldn't agree with most of it, except the teaching that goes beyond that is where it really comes into play. And just because there's 40,000 people or 20 million people, whatever, watching that ministry every month does not mean necessarily they're getting fed with the truth of the gospel. You will not hear um, sin talked about. That's one thing that's really not talked about. The, the word sin doesn't even come up much, all right? And yet, when the resurrection uh, is talked about, it is the fact that God is able to raise that which is dead, which is us, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, and raise us up to newness of life and eternal life. And yes, that has something to do with the, the body that someday will die, but it is the spiritual quickening or making alive of the very soul and spirit as we believe. And, and if you're in your sin, nothing can, can happen in that area. You have to repent and by faith trust Christ. And then he is able to resurrect us in that way. And, and I wish there was some kind of message like that, especially with an audience like that. Wouldn't that be something? But anyways, I'm not here to talk about those things nor do i want to compare myself necessarily against that or this or whatever but if i was to compare myself against other churches and i say myself our, our church but myself as a pastor and saying are we successful here are we not i can just tell you this that if you're always just looking that way you're going to fall short and the worst thing is is when you compare yourself against yourself and we're not to do that in Scripture. We're to compare ourselves and our works and everything we do, our ministry, against what the Lord is like and what He expects. Well, we'll pick this up. We'll read through the first, well, these, these verses, the remaining part of the chapter, and then go back through and, and look at it. Paul writes, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, 
But they measure themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not over, uh, overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we, became, we came with the gospel of Christ not boasting of the things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends let's pray god again thank you for your word and lord we commit ourselves and this ministry and lord these really now many years of teaching and gathering and fellowshipping and evangelizing and all these things lord we commit them to you even tonight afresh may you just continue to do a great work in our community in our lives in our world tonight in jesus name amen as I mentioned earlier, you sometimes have this idea that um, maybe we're doing better than we should, or we might, by looking at ourselves, and I had, I mentioned this before, but I had a fire chief that once said, um, he says, if you always measure yourself by yourself, you always look good. And, and that's true. And so we would, after every fire call, sit down and we would examine what went well and what didn't, and it was open for anybody to criticize, and they could criticize anybody including the chief and I I like that about him is that he let you do that and he would learn from it and it was a it was a work in progress and we improved greatly in those uh, years where he was our chief that was in Passanumkeg years ago and I, I just remember that and that's biblical that's biblical in that if you always compare yourself against yourselves you you're not being wise that's what Paul says there and we're really to compare ourselves against the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is like. And I think if he be lifted up, then he, as he promises, will draw all men unto himself. If we be lifted up, well, and we might draw people to ourselves for a while, but eventually that's going to fail. That's the way it is. It will fail. Everybody eventually passes off the scene, but he does not, does he? His work continues. Well, we know that in the book of Revelation, of course, uh, in those seven churches that are addressed in the opening chapters there, chapter 2 and 3, um, in some of those, uh, Jesus measured them far differently than they measured themselves, right? Uh, look at Revelation 2, 8 and 11, um, 8 to 11. It says, And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead, and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. If you were to visit Smyrna in those days, I think people there would have looked at themselves and said, we're in a bad 
place. We're, we're in a place where we're impoverished, and yet that was their view of themselves. We're poor. They were definitely a suffering church, and yet Christ calls them rich, and he calls them overcomers. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel would not have worked in Smyrna, nor would it work in most places in our world today, especially where Christians are hurting and suffering and persecuted and poor and those kind of things. It gives them nothing more than a false hope is what it does, that prosperity gospel that is so often preached. What Paul preached was the gospel that delivers man and women, boys and girls, from sin and gives them the eternal life and the hope that's found in that. Well, the church at Smyrna viewed themselves as as poor and Jesus said, you're rich. Now here's a church that viewed themselves as rich and they were really poor, right? Laodicea. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, having become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' view of the Laodicean church was a lot different than the way they viewed themselves, right? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. They were a church that were both lukewarm spiritually, but then also they, they also had uh, great problems, didn't they? And Jesus alludes to that. They were trusting in their material wealth when instead they should have been seeking riches in Christ. Gold refined in the fire. They were probably clothed in the finest garments, but Jesus says you're naked. Your shame has caused you to be naked. Probably sin was not dealt with very well there. And people were endorsing sin. And then anoint your eyes with Isov. That was a product of Laodicea that was exported throughout the world. Uh, they had medicinal Isov. And he says, you need spiritual Isov. You know, Jesus hits them hard that you may, be, you may see. And then he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's Jesus beckoning to his church and saying, look at me and let me in, right? And I, I think that's important. Well, anyways, there's ways we measure ourselves. And, and by the way, it is sometimes numeric. We look and we say, oh, you know, there's so many people that are coming or whatever. And that can be a measurement of spirituality also. Um, but I will say this, that it's easier to measure activity than it is to measure transformation from within. Often the two are connected, uh, but you will have sometimes 
those, those numbers are skewed, right? We, for instance, know in the book of Acts that when the Lord was moving mightily in those early days of the church, there were thousands getting saved. And these were indeed true repentance and salvation. And these people, as they were numbered, we know Acts 2.41, 3,000 souls. So it's not necessarily against principle to track numbers. I think that's a historical record. The first day of the church, there are 3,000 people added to the church, numbered with them. And these were those that had been baptized and had had shown repentance. And by the time you come to Acts 4, you have 5,000 more, right? And these are the men. And it says, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's, that's amazing. And by the way, it's about 5,000. Um, it wasn't, you know, as we so often, you know, start counting everybody and then count the dog that was out in the street and count this over here, you know, make sure everything's numbered in, right? And uh, take right down to the last bit. We just say it was a great work, a great work in doing that. But you know, it wasn't always easy. And later on, not even very far, far after Acts 4, you come to Acts 5, and there were people, though the church, it says here in uh, Acts 5.11, it says, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things, Okay. So there was a great reverence for things going on. You have in that the context of dealing with sin. But then look what happens. It says, And though uh, through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them. And, but the people esteemed them highly. You know, So there were those that stood off. They were worried. You know, So... There was really something big going on, but there were people that weren't joining. And sometimes that is not, what I'm saying is it's not necessarily a measure of what is going on. Because sometimes there'll be people, people that reject it and for whatever reasons, and they'll go away. Well, anyways, you have these, these three areas, right? You have how to measure, well, you have uh, waging spiritual warfare and the use of spiritual authority and then measuring spiritual ministry. And quickly, as we go down through this, there are, there are false measurements, and the false measurements were very simply the Judaizers who had come. Um, they were the ones that were measuring their ministry and their uh, really their religion is what it was by themselves. And it is always easier to measure external activities than internal transformation. And so they were good at it. Paul has to write to defend that. And by the way, the, the legalist can measure um, what he does and what he does not do. And it's, again, harder to measure when you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit where he's producing fruit in your life. But that is often when you come to someone who's trusting in their works, they say, this is what I do and this is what I don't do. And I can check that off, right? Uh, and yet... It's harder to say, uh, well, this is what the Lord is doing in my life and changing me from within, and it's more of a holistic approach, isn't it? It's not easy to check off sometimes, but it's evidenced. It's seen. It's like that. And again, the Judaizers were part of that group that they would measure themselves by themselves, and they always came out looking good. And Paul calls them out and says, you're not wise. 
And that is true. They were not. He says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. What Paul writes elsewhere is that we are to measure ourselves against Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, in the context of ministry here, he writes this in Ephesians 4.12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see his measuring standard? The fullness of Christ. Are you more like Christ today or not? And that is the ultimate standard. Now, he will measure that someday also at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that he will reward us according to what we did for him in faith. For those things, the things that weren't done by faith, those works are burned up. But we're to measure ourselves by Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. What's the end goal? Christ. Be like him. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And here you have uh, the church, the body of Christ, being brought together and for the edification of that. The Judaizers were not measuring themselves by Christ. They were measuring themselves by their legalistic system. And they were bringing people into bondage by doing so. Well, there's also the true measurement, and that's the remaining verses. The true measurement. And this, we'll start here with just these two verses, uh, 10 and, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 13 to 14. Paul writes for, he says, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. So Paul saw his, his ministry as an appointment, okay? A sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Now, the question to ask here is, am I where God wants me to be? Sometimes, and I'm saying this from a pastor's perspective and ministry, um, there's always the, the beckoning call of of any person i think anywhere you want to be successful right so we start measuring ourselves by by other people out there or you know my my brother down in bangor or my brother down in in boston or what you know what i mean we we measure and we say oh this must be where success is and in reality is i first have to say is am i where god wants me to be maybe that's in a bible study with 19 people maybe it's in a prayer meeting with less than that i don't know (laughs) you know tonight but I say this, that if you know God called you to something, in this case Paul was called by God, his first question would be, am I where I should be? Was I supposed to be there in Corinth? Was I outside the scope of where Christ commissioned me? 
And you have to say no. When he was called, remember Acts chapter 19, you have the conversion of Saul, the apostle Paul, and Ananias, who goes to him, is told this. Acts 9.15 But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, that Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Do you realize that Paul was within the scope of the commission of Christ? And when Ananias goes to him and commissions him, and by the way, Jesus talked to Paul. He recounts that in Acts 22 21 when Paul says then he Jesus said to me depart for I will send you um, far from here to the Gentiles so here he is on the road to Damascus that's not too far from Jerusalem nearby and he's commissioned to go far from here to the Gentiles now think of that okay this and, and in that context you read that and he talks about what he was consenting unto the death of Stephen and he was persecuting the church and all that it was pretty good for Saul of Tarsus right here he was local to home he was a big guy in the sense of somebody with name and stature that way he probably wasn't many bigger physically but he was a man that commanded authority He was able to go to the high priests and get letters of authority to go and arrest Christians. He had power. And then God says, oh yeah, you protector of Judaism, you Pharisee, I am going to knock you flat on your back. That's what he does. And he sees the resurrected Christ and he hears the voice of the Lord and he's commissioned to go to the furthest reaches, the Gentiles. Imagine a Pharisee going to the Gentiles. Only God could do something like that. And he converts this man. He's great conversion. And his heart now is not for the protection of the law, but for the grace of God that came through Jesus Christ. And he goes to the far corners of the world in his day. Ephesians, he says the same thing. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles... He names them. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with who? The Jews. He was actually bringing the Gentiles in the Jews together. Of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The gospel that was first given to the Jew is now given to the Gentiles. And they're brought into one body. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of God, of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And he says, to me who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul had a wonderful ministry, a calling, an appointment. He could answer that question, am I where God wants me to be? 
Yes, he was exactly where God wanted him to be. And I think that's, uh, that's part of that. Uh, the next thing is, um, yeah, go back to this. And he, he uses a little, as I think Warren Wiersbe calls it, sanctified sarcasm. He says, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, you know, he said, if, you th- if you're wondering if I was outside of the sphere which God called me, he says, you guys are part of that, you know? And that's true. He was right where God wanted him in that. You have to be found faithful. All right, moving on here. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in other man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I like what Paul writes here. He's, he's, the, the question that could be asked of Paul is God glorified through my ministry? And I would have to ask that about us. Is God glorified through the ministry that goes on here at Madawaska Gospel Church? And I, I would hope it would be a yes. I, I think it is a yes. I see that very much. Is he always glorified? Probably not. But I will say that that is what we need to strive for. And again, when you look at the Judaizers in Corinth, they were not glorifying God. No, they were nothing more than glorifying their dead religion is what they were doing. And they were glorifying themselves because commending themselves and comparing themselves with themselves. Sometimes we do that. Need that to go back to what the Lord says. And he says here, uh, quotes from Jeremiah, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. All right? That's from Jeremiah 9.24, if you wanted to know. And... Uh, interesting Paul quotes that verse also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 I believe it is and yeah the end of chapter 1 uh, he quotes that again and I, I, thought, I started thinking about that I think when Paul was at Corinth you know where he was reading in his devotions probably Jeremiah <laughs> by the way was Jeremiah a successful prophet not by human standards was he no. How many converts did he see in his, his years of ministry? Yeah, none that we know of. He had a great influence. There were definitely still believers that were part of that group before the, the captivity into Babylon, the final captivity. His ministry as a prophet spans several kings, some better than others. And yet he's known as the weeping prophet. And you read through Jeremiah, and he's very melancholy. I mean, I can only read Jeremiah in small doses, you know, because it's so heavy. Not, not bad, just heavy. We need a Jeremiah. I think when Paul was at Corinth, he probably was thinking about Jeremiah a lot. And yet Paul had far greater, really, impact in Corinth than Jeremiah did in his day as a prophet to his nation. If we compared ourselves and said, 
or compared the prophets of the Bible and said who was successful, who wasn't, I would have to say probably the most successful prophet in the Bible. Um, I mean, uh, there, there were many different occasions, but probably uh, Jonah. And yet, where was Jonah's heart? You know, well, Jonah was just someone who preached the word of God and God showed up and he, he convicted the Ninevites and they, these, these people repent. Jonah didn't even want them to repent. Jeremiah wanted his people to repent and they didn't, you know. Yet who is the better prophet? I don't know. I mean, they were both prophets, both in different times, both called of God. And I don't want to compare myself to them. I wouldn't even stand in the same room. They were great men. A lot more could be said with that. But let him who glories glory in the Lord. And really, the final test of any ministry is that we have to say, can the Lord commend my work? Can the Lord look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Uh, after all, again, First Corinthians, Paul says it is, um, it is required of stewards to be found faithful. And you know what? If you've been entrusted with something as a steward, that means that someone else has given you that area of responsibility. In this case, the Lord. He might give you know, somebody the sphere of influence where 20 million people are watching their you know, programming a month or something like that. He hasn't given me that, and I'm glad. I couldn't do it. But what am I faithful at? What should I be accountable for? What should you be accountable for? How are you influencing people around you? What's your sphere? Where have you been called? Those are all questions that come out of this chapter. And Paul says, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Ultimately, it's all about who he commends and not us. God, again, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, I, I ask that you would just uh, help us to, well, to be faithful in the tasks that are given to us, in the little things and in the great things. And Lord, I pray again that there'd be others, even in this area, Lord, that would come to saving faith and would be desirous of coming to Bible studies and desirous, O oh Lord, of, of hearing your word and, and repenting and coming to become Christians. We thank you for that great work you began so long ago and continue to this day. In Jesus' name, amen.